1: Live from New York, I'm Zane Asher, in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here is your need to know. Jobs jolt. U.S. economy adds fewer jobs than expected. DDD lists. Chinese firm will leave New York just months after a botched IPO. And cases climb. New Omicron outbreak across Europe. It is Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move wherever you are in the world. U.S. stock futures are fairly flat as we count down to the open with investors digesting a very disappointing November jobs report. 210,000 jobs created last month. November, economists were actually expecting for a number roughly around 500,000, but the unemployment rate fell sharply to 4.2%. Those numbers predating the discovery of the Omicron variant, a new factor that significantly clouds the outlook for recovery. We will dig into that jobs report in just a few moments. In Europe, stocks are slightly higher after a volatile week for markets worldwide. The initial reports about Omicron unleashed five days of wild swings for shares from the U.S. to Hong Kong. In the energy market, oil is up over 2%. That's after OPEC producers signaled that they were willing to reconsider plans to increase output if COVID developments lead to a significant change in demand. I want to get straight now to our drivers. Matt Egan joins us live now from here in New York. So, Matt, just walk us through this jobs report. Ended up being half, half the number of jobs added in November than what analysts had been expecting. Why so few?
2: Well, Zane, you know, at first blush, uh, this jobs report looked like a bit of a dud. As you mentioned, just 210,000 jobs added uh, during the month of November, less than half of what analysts were expecting. There were some Wall Street economists who were calling for seven or even 800,000 jobs were added. This is nothing close to that. Leisure and hospitality was a big source of weakness. That was supposed to be a big job gainer. In reality was a little changed jobs in that very key, very exposed uh, to COVID sector are still down by more than a million from February 2020. But I think when you really look under the hood, uh, this is a much more mixed jobs report than it first looked like. And there's actually a lot of positives. First off, the unemployment rate is falling all the way to 4.2%. That's down from 4.6% in October. It is the lowest level we've seen since March of 2020. And it is way down from the the pandemic peak of nearly 15% during the spring of 2020. Um, Another positive that we saw is that wages are up nearly 5% over the last 12 months. That's not quite keeping up with inflation, but it does show really strong demand For workers, just like the fact that people are quitting their jobs and the great resignation, um, that also shows strong demand for for workers. Um, Another positive here is that the labor participation rate rose. It rose to the highest level since um, March of 2020. That shows that more people are getting off the sidelines and they're actually going right to work. Um, And the other thing is that previous months, the prior two months, were revised higher, revised higher by 82,000. Uh, jobs. We've seen that happen a lot lately, where uh, the government is underestimating the strength of the jobs market, and then it revises it higher. And there's no reason to think that that won't happen again with today's numbers. So um, I do think there's some positives here. But Zane, the big question mark, the big wild card hanging over the economy and the jobs market, of course, is the Omicron variant. And this is a rear view looking number. It really doesn't capture anything that may or may happen, may not happen because of the variant. And so uh, that is the risk uh, that everyone's looking at going forward.
1: You bring up a good point, and that is it is so much more there's so much more to this jobs report than just the headline number as you talk about it's the fact that previous months got revised higher it is the unemployment rate of being just 4.2 percent it is the labor force participation rate so there's so much for the fed to digest here i do want to talk about congress because they passed a short-term funding bill that averted government shutdown however janet yellen the treasury secretary is saying that the government could still run out of money by december 15th walk us through that
2: yeah. you know uh, The government shutdown has been getting all the he- headlines. And it, of course, it's, it's, it's welcome news that there won't be a shutdown, at least not until February, since they kicked the can down the road. Uh, but that was never really a risk, uh, I don't think, in, in the view of uh, you know, the economists that I've been talking to or the market. It was seen as sort of uh, a nuisance. The big risk, again, is the debt ceiling. Um, everyone expects that Congress will do the right thing. And um, figure out a way to address the debt ceiling so the United States avoids a catastrophic default on its debt. Uh, But yeah, Janet Yellen warned lawmakers this week that if Congress fails to act here, that it could eviscerate, that's her word, eviscerate the economic recovery. So that is the big risk out there. Um, And, you know what, we saw this happen a few months ago. Uh, Congress usually debates this, uh, waits until the last moment or something close to the last moment, and then eventually does the right thing. Uh, Hopefully, that's what happens here.
1: Yeah, we've seen this story play out over and over again. Matt Egan, uh, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, DD delisting. China's raid ride, ride, excuse me, hailing giant is making a handbrake turn, taking itself off the New York Stock Exchange and pivoting to Hong Kong. It is just a few months since Didi's New York IPO brought a furious response from the Chinese government. Paul and Monica is joining me live now with more. Paul, it's been a while. So good to see you. Um, DD has faced so much pressure from Beijing over its decision to list on the New York Stock Exchange. Just walk us through that.
3: Yeah, you had, Zane, that DD decided to have its shares list in the United States. And that clearly, in hindsight, was a catastrophic error, a misjudgment and miscalculation by companies management because Beijing not happy with the move to the point where you started to see DD get cracked down on for uh, privacy and cybersecurity uh, concerns, and as a result of that, DD once it started trading on the New York, uh, you know, stock exchange, it went from a company that had so much promise and hype; it was essentially China's Uber or Lyft, and instead, you had DD plunge, and now the company is going to go back and start listing its shares in Hong Kong. Instead, it's a recognition, I think, that companies from China that want to trade in the United States, if they don't have all of their ducks in a row, so to speak, before they make that decision, and unless they want to do a dual listing as well, then there's probably going to be a lot of resistance from the Chinese government, and we know that that may not end well. Just look at what's happening to many other Chinese ADRs, companies like Baidu and Alibaba and JD, Pinduoduo, they've all been crushed in recent months as well, Zane.
1: Yeah, because I am curious um, what the sort of stock market reaction is likely to be going forward, especially, you know, with other Chinese sort of tech companies.
3: Yeah, uh, we've clearly had a big pullback in many of the Chinese tech giants that list in the United States. And it's partly because there have just been crackdowns on many of those companies in uh, uh, Beijing as well. I think the big question is going to be, A company like Alibaba, for example, it has been public in the United States since 2014, and then it subsequently listed shares in Hong Kong as well. Will that be enough to appease the communist government of China and regulators there so that a company like Alibaba can continue to have that dual listing? I'm not so sure that we should jump to conclusions yet and say that All big Chinese companies are going to be leaving Wall Street, but this is clearly sending shockwaves throughout the financial community. And I think a lot of investors that might own these big Chinese stocks, which have great growth potential, have to be wondering, are my shares all of a sudden that are on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ suddenly going to go away and now only be listed in Hong Kong or Shanghai? Perhaps.
1: Yeah, it's going to be worrying for them. All right. uh, Paul and Monica, live for us there. Thank you so much. A new wave of Covid cases is spreading alarm across Europe. German leaders have ordered a near lockdown of anyone who has not been vaccinated, barring them from anything but essential businesses. Fred Pleitgen is joining us live now from Berlin. Uh, So, Fred, how close is Germany at this point in terms of making Covid-19 vaccines mandatory?
4: Well, I'd say, Zane, uh, probably closer by the day, and, and what you're hearing is really um, politicians from um, many political parties here in Germany, and certainly for those that are in the government, uh, saying that they are actually in favor uh, of vaccine mandates. You had Angela Merkel come out and say that. She's, of course, the outgoing chancellor. You also had the designated incoming chancellor, Olaf Scholz, say he is also in favor of vaccine mandates. And the way that German politics wants to handle this is they say they're going to dra- uh, draw up a draft law probably by the end of this year, and then have the German parliament vote on it, most probably uh, around February, and see whether or not these ma- vaccine mandates are going to come uh, into uh, into effect. It certainly would be a very big step for German politics, but certainly one that, uh, if you look at recent polls, does have the majority of Germans behind it. And the situation, quite frankly, uh, Zane, here in this country, continues to be dire. We had sort of falling new coronavirus infections over the past couple of days, but today once again, a massive spike going on in those coronavirus uh, infections possibly caused by a backlog uh, in the tracing uh, that was going on and the German health minister, he came out today and he said something that really has a lot of people alarmed. He said even if all the measures that were decided by, uh, by German politicians yesterday, that lockdown, most first and foremost for unvaccinated people, even if that goes into full effect and has a major effect, he thinks at the peak of uh, of ICUs being filled with patients here in this country will come around Christmas time and will put uh, the healthcare system here under an even bigger strain. So right now this country certainly in a lot of trouble and very much contemplating that mandatory, uh, that vaccines be made mandatory in the not too distant future, Zane.
1: And let's talk about Switzerland, because there have been two cases of the Mm -hmm. Omicron variant found at an international school in Switzerland. And as a result, 2,000 people, most of them children, have been placed in in quarantine.
4: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this this happened in Geneva. And I think it just shows how seriously authorities in a lot of these European countries um, are taking the Omicron variant and and really trying to find out not just how contagious it is, but also how dangerous it is as well. This happened at the international school uh, in Geneva, where you had two people uh, who were confirmed to have the Omicron variant. Apparently, this stems from uh, someone coming back from a family trip uh, to uh, South Africa. And as a result, indeed, 2,000 staff and also students of that international school were placed into quarantine. 1,600 of them, uh, around 1,600, are actually uh, children. And all of them need to take a PCR test, continue that quarantine. There's also, of course, siblings, parents, and and a lot of other people who uh, who are affected by this as well. Uh, the Swiss authorities say this is the first and largest quarantine measure uh, due to the uh, Omicron variant. And, and again, just gives you a reflection uh, of right now the mood in Europe and how Europe is really trying to come to terms with the Omicron variant while it literally watches it spread around the continent, Zane. Fred
1: Pleitgen, live for us there. Thank you so much. From Europe to Asia, which is also facing fresh outbreaks as well. Ivan Watson has more from Hong Kong.
5: A top official with the World Health Organization is warning governments to prepare for the Omicron variant of the COVID-19 virus, uh, predicting that most countries will eventually face this and also predicting that it's probably circulating in more countries than have so far identified cases of the new variant. Uh, One country in the Asia Pacific region that has detected uh, Omicron is Australia, which has ordered an urgent investigation of a cluster of confirmed COVID cases linked to a school in Western Sydney. 13 confirmed COVID cases, among them three Omicron variant cases confirmed. And the reason that health authorities there are n- concerned and nervous is that this cluster is not linked to any international travel, suggesting it is local transmission. And, and most of the cases that we're hearing about in other countries around the world are linked to some kind of international travel, uh, which is part of why many countries have banned travel from a number of Southern African countries. China so far has not detected, announced detection of an Omicron variant case, but it is dealing with uh, outbreaks in several Northern cities, prompting the uh, lockdowns of those cities. The most difficult city right now, the the hotspot, is Manjuli on the border with Russia in China's inner Mongolia region, which had another 80 local symptomatic cases reported on Thursday. That city facing a very strict lockdown And another border city, Harbin, which has detected new fresh cases, despite China's zero-case policy approach to the virus, uh, also now facing strict restrictions on coming and going from that city. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong.
1: All right, these are the stories making headlines around the world. Beijing is criticizing the Women's Tennis Association for suspending its events in China, saying the organization is politicizing sport. The WTA acted over concerns for the safety of tennis star Peng Shuai, who had publicly accused China's former vice premier of sexual assault. Those concerns remain despite the International Olympic Committee speaking with Peng on Wednesday for the second time since her disappearance. The Taliban have issued a special decree on women's rights in Afghanistan, saying local leaders should take seriously action to enforce those rights. The decree says women should not be considered property and cannot be forced to marry. It also says that oppressing women will anger Allah. Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, says she hopes her court victory over the mail on Sunday will help change British tabloids. On Thursday, a British court affirmed that the newspaper had violated her privacy. Meghan hopes British tabloids will stop profiting from, quote, the lies and pain they create. Right, coming up here on First Move, a growing number of countries is detecting cases of the Omicron coronavirus variant. We'll have the latest with a senior advisor at the World Health Organization. Plus, a Facebook controversy uncovered by CNN. It's been accepting ads that compare COVID vaccination programs to the Holocaust. Details next. All right, welcome back to First Move. U.S. futures pointing to a slightly higher open on the last day of a very volatile trading week. that's despite a big disappointment from the November jobs report, the U.S. economy adding just 210,000 jobs last month. That is, by the way, less than half, less than half the number that analysts uh, had been expecting. Let's get the latest on that jobs report. Joining me live now is Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist for Invesco. Christina, thank you so much for being with us. So the Fed, just in terms of They're tapering. I mean, they're looking at this jobs report and they are thinking what?
6: So they're looking at this jobs report and thinking it's largely a positive jobs report. I mean, we saw labor force participation go up. Um, We saw uh, black unemployment go down, Hispanic unemployment go down. Um, We saw average hourly earnings go up. But more modestly. Uh, so, so, fears about um, very high wage growth were not realized uh, in this report. They came in under expectations. Um, so, all in all, it was a pretty good jobs report. I don't think it will change anything the Fed does, although it might be a little less concerned about inflation now. Um, but of course, it remains a very significant concern for the Fed.
1: Yeah, so explain, explain the Stubbs report to me because you, on the one hand, you had this headline number that was quite disappointing, right? Um, basically, less than half the number that analysts had been expecting, 210,000 versus half a million, essentially. But at the same time, you have all of these bright spots. You have the unemployment rate being at 4.2%. You've got 600,000 people coming into the labor force who were waiting on the sidelines. Just square that circle for me. How do, how do both those things work together? Well, sometimes they just
6: don't work together on a month-to-month basis. And uh, keep in mind, though, that there are always opportunities for do-overs. And by that, I mean, the following month, we'll get uh, revisions to this month. And it could be that we see revisions upward um, versus uh, what we got today. Um, So there is, and we just have to recognize there is a built-in level of volatility Uh, in the non-farm payrolls numbers on a month-to-month basis. So you you can see, if we go back in time, that uh, estimates for what is going to happen and what actually happens, there can be such a big gap between the two. So what I think is important to focus on is that uh, average hourly earnings. uh, I think that's very important, especially when we think about inflation, as well as where the jobs are being created and where they aren't. We saw losses in retail and we actually saw a very tepid job creation in leisure and hospitality. And so that tells me that it's becoming difficult to source workers in that space, which is something we knew. Um, But we're likely to see an increase in jobs uh, in that space in the December jobs report um, simply because employers are going to pay more. We're already seeing offers of sign-on bonuses or special holiday pay. So I think we're going to see increases there. Um, We always have to take a step back and realize uh, each jobs report is just one tile in a mosaic that tells us, a story about the economy.
1: So just I want to touch on something that you you sort of mentioned about wage growth. So wage growth this time was, was pretty solid. What does that mean, do you think, for price increases? Uh,
6: so I don't think that One month uh, has a lot to do with price increases, but clearly if employers are feeling pressure on their profit margins, they are going to increase prices. I mean, we've already heard in uh, earnings reports uh, from various companies that they they feel comfortable and they have been able to pass on some price increases uh, to customers. Uh, So anytime we see uh, higher wage growth, we can certainly worry that it might get passed on to customers, but this was um, more modest this month. It wasn't as much as expected. So I don't know if it's going to play a big role. December, um, we might very well see those costs passed on to consumers, uh, just because employers are likely going to be paying a lot more uh, in in the, in the retail space uh, in the leisure and hospitality space. But what everyone is concerned about is the impact on inflation over the longer term. And I think it's important to point out that while wage growth tends to be sticky, um, usually that part of the uh, part of uh, the job uh, jobs that is retail, that is leisure and hospitality, there's a lot of turnover so it is less sticky than other industries.
1: And it's also important to note that, um, you know, we're getting these numbers before the Omicron variant became a real factor, a real player here. Um, how much of a threat? I mean, obviously, there's so much we don't know at this point uh, in terms of how vaccine resistant this variant is, if at all. But how much of a threat do you think this new variant is to the, to the labor force in this country?
6: Well, Zane, we're only hearing very preliminarily uh, information that suggests that Um, it is a mild form of COVID-19. So that is all we can go on at this point. We're waiting to hear more. So the key indicator that I'm looking at is mobility. Um, We can look at Google mobility data from many countries to see how the release of that information about this new variant is affecting how people live. Um, and thus far in the US, now of course the, the we can only get data as of November 29th right now, um, but we saw a dip around Thanksgiving uh, and then an inc- and, and then a, a return to pretty normal levels uh, for retail and recreation. So that's the dining out, that's the shopping out um, kind of of a portion of activity. So I thus far at least it seems as though at least when it when Amer- where american consumers are concerned they haven't altered their behavior
1: and so i just want to get your take on just sort of big picture how the landscape of the labor market in this country has changed since the start of this pandemic, if you look at this particular job report, I know that you can't look at any jobs report in isolation, but looking at this particular jobs report, you're seeing that, you know, some of the sort of tepid, lackluster uh, jobs numbers were in you know, areas like retail, like leisure, like hospitality. Where are those workers going now?
6: So they're looking for higher paying jobs. That's what certainly we're hearing anecdotally is that many view this as this great opportunity um, because there's a shortage of of, uh, workers uh, to find higher paying jobs. Uh, So those who would traditionally be in the retail space, uh, those who would traditionally be in hospitality and leisure uh, are First of all, concerned about potentially catching COVID-19, but also, of course, seeing the opportunity to make more money uh, and are looking in other industries, um, uh, more uh, business services, that kind of space.
1: All right. Uh, Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco, thank you so much for being with us. The Market Open is up next. You're watching First Move. 9.30 9.30 a.m. here in New York City. That was the opening bell rung by the local bounty corporation. And let me tell you, so far, it has been a very volatile week uh, here in New York, just in terms of Wall Street. But U.S. stocks are up and running for the very last session uh, in a roller coaster week uh, that ended with a somewhat disappointing jobs report. Payrolls grew by just 210,000. Last month, that was the headline number. That is well below the half a million, the 550,000 that economists had been talking about and had been uh, expecting. And remember, technically, those numbers, uh, the 210,000 you see added there, cover a period before the Omicron variant became a concern. This covers uh, November. Looking at individual stocks. Didi is down after the Chinese ride-hailing giant said it will delist from New York and move to Hong Kong. Didi came under pressure from the Chinese government right after its U.S. IPO as Beijing cracked down on the tech sector. Moving on to another Asian firm, Grab is making a steadier start, up about 3.5% after a rough first day on the Nasdaq. It sank more than 20% yesterday after the biggest Wall Street debut by a Southeast Asian company. The World Health Organization has a new warning about the rapid spread of the Omicron variant. The head of the group's Western Pacific region says he believes more countries have the variant that are being reported. President Biden launching a new strategy to deal with both the Omicron and Delta variants. He's pushing for more vaccinations and booster shots while tightening rules on testing for those traveling into United States. All right, Dr. Bruce Elwood leads a new WHO program called ACT Accelerator. It aims to get, uh, aims to develop and produce COVID treatments, tests, and vaccines for people around the world who need them most. The initiative is supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, among others. And Dr. Elwood joins us live now from uh, Geneva. Dr. Elwood, thank you so much for being with us. About. I would say five minutes, 10 minutes before I came on air, we actually got news from the chief scientist at the World Health Organization basically saying that just because um, there are reports right now that the Omicron variant causes mild symptoms, that does not mean that it will always be that way. How long till we get a concrete look at just how serious this variant really is?
7: It's going to take a few weeks, Zane. And this will depend a little bit on the variant itself because we can look at the genetic sequence, which has concerning changes. We can look at it in the laboratory and see how it behaves and that can tell us some things, but it's really gonna be that real life experience. And if it spreads very rapidly, it will tell us that quite rapidly. If it's very dangerous, it will tell us that quite rapidly. So it in part depends on the virus itself. But usually you're looking at weeks. Because remember, Zane, if you look in one place and you see one thing, it may be biased because it's a certain population. So you need to look at it in many places as well. And because of the current spread, uh, we should get answers relatively soon.
1: And it's not just about, you know, how serious the symptoms are. What everybody's dying to know is really, um, you know, whether or not it evades vaccines. That is really key here, whether or not the vaccines can protect us against this variant. How long till we get a better sense of that?
7: Well, again, we're in a really different situation than previous viruses, because with this variant, as it's emerged, it's against the background where a lot of people have been vaccinated in the world, or at least in the rich countries of the world, which means that we should get an answer relatively quickly as to how well the vaccines work. And the way I like to think about it, Zane, is the question is not, will they work? It's how well will they work, right? We don't expect it not to work at all, or we certainly hope not. So it's a a matter of degree.
1: Um, Let's talk about because you talk about the rich countries where a lot of people are vaccinated. And that's certainly true. But as you know, Dr. Elwood, there's a there's a part of the world where there is a very, very different reality. Obviously, in the wake of the discovery of the Omicron variant, a lot of Western nations closed their borders to southern Africa. Many people are saying that instead of closing their borders to the southern part of Africa, instead, uh, European countries should have ramped up efforts to supply vaccines to that part of the world. Do you agree with that?
7: Absolutely and the problem is not just vaccines right we have a toxic mix of low vaccine coverage low testing so we have a opportunity for the virus to spread we're not putting pressure on it with vaccines and then we're blind to what's actually happening as a merge because we're not testing at the right rates and all this is solvable. That's why we set up the ACT Accelerator to be able to get these tools into these countries. But they have just a fraction of the access of what we're seeing in the high-income countries, which just reminds us again, Zane, you cannot vaccinate your way out of this in the high-income countries alone. You've got to protect the whole world with all of the tools we have at our disposal.
1: Um, So much has been made of this idea that, you know, it is high time that a lot of African countries really start laying the groundwork to manufacture their own vaccines. A lot of African doctors and scientists who I've had on this program have talked to me about that many times over. However, we all know that's going to take time. What would you say was the shorter term solution, the step between getting to that point, which is an important milestone, um, and where we are now? crucial
7: thing today is full transparency on who's making how much vaccine where and where is it going if we have transparency on that from the manufacturers from the high income countries then you can start solving the problem of equitable distribution the fastest way to solve the problem right now is move as much vaccine as you can through COVAX the mechanism we've set up to equitably allocate it, and put the money behind it. Not just for the vaccine, but also to hire the people, to train the people to give these, to overcome now the, uh, the, the rumors that have spread from the uh, north. Because as we've limited access, we've given huge to the vaccine. We've given huge access to all the misinformation and rumors, mm-hmm. et cetera. So now these low-income countries are dealing with twice as many problems.
1: Um, You have uh, various countries in Europe that because of vaccine hesitancy, I mean, obviously, their vaccination rates are much higher than they are in Africa, but there is some degree of vaccine hesitancy. So there are a handful of European countries that are talking about and actually implementing vaccine mandates. And surprisingly, there are even some African countries that are following suit as well. Places like Ghana, um, South Africa is talking about it, Kenya as well. What do you make of vaccine mandates? in this environment. Is that really what it's going to take to get entire populations vaccinated?
7: Well, we believe there's a huge amount that needs to be done to understand why people aren't getting vaccinated and make sure they're getting the right information through the right channels from the right people so that we can optimize the probability of them getting vaccinated. Mandates should really be a last resort. And only, uh, you know, countries are at a the sovereign states can decide how they want to manage uh, a rollout in their own countries. But our recommendation and our position is we do try to avoid mandates.
1: So you're part of the ACT accelerator program at the WHO. Just explain to us how that works and how you go about trying to get vaccines to the people around the world who need them the most.
7: Well, the ACT Accelerator is this um, fantastic collaboration across all the leading, let's say, international health agencies that are now focused on vaccines, tests, treatments, and personal protective equipment. How do we develop it more rapidly and how do we get it out equitably? And what we've done is set up an end-to-end solution from the R&D right to the in-country delivery. So we've got in the area of vaccines, for example, um, uh, Gavi is doing the deals and and buying the vaccine. UNICEF is shipping it into countries. WHO is working on the policy regulatory framework. So we have a whole pipeline leveraging the organization with experience, decades of experience and relationships on the ground to try and ensure that we can update these vaccines as rapidly as possible.
1: All right, Dr. Bruce Aylward from the WHO, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, coming up here on First Move, Facebook criticised for making money from shocking new ads. That story next. In an interview with ABC that aired Thursday night, an emotional Alec Baldwin said that he never pulled the trigger of the gun on the Rust movie set that fired a live bullet, killing cinematographer Helena Hutchins. Lucy Kafanoff joins us live now from Denver, Colorado, with more on what Baldwin had to say. Lucy, I think that the question that everybody's asking is how on earth did live ammunition end up in a gun on a movie set? Well, Zane, that is also the
8: question that Alec Baldwin is asking. We did not get any information about that. That is still subject to investigation. But Alec Baldwin, in this raw, lengthy interview, denied responsibility. He said he would have killed himself if he believed that this was his fault. Now, in the interview, Baldwin described the moments leading up to that gun being discharged. He was rehearsing a scene with Helena Hutchins. He said Helena told him to point the gun right below her armpit for what he called a completely incidental shot, an angle that he says may not have even ended up in the film at all. He says he began to cock the gun. He let go of the hammer, but insisted that he didn't pull that
9: trigger. Take a listen.
10: So you have this cold forty-five. you just pulled.
9: The hammer as far back as I could without cocking the actual. And you're
2: holding on to the hammer.
9: I'm holding that. I'm just showing. I go, how about that? Does that work? Do you see that? Do you see that? She goes, yeah, that's good. I let go of the hammer. Bang, the gun goes. off. Everyone is horrified, they're shocked, Uh, it's loud. They don't have their earplugs in, no one was, the gun was supposed to be empty. I was told I was handed an empty gun. If There were cosmetic rounds, nothing with a charge at all, a flash round, nothing. She goes down. I thought to myself, did she faint? The notion that there was a live round in that gun did not dawn on me till probably 45 minutes to an hour later.
8: Now, Baldwin says you heard him there that he was told the gun was safe by crew members who were in charge of the weapons. He said that he would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them. Zane? So he's saying that he's not responsible. So then, who was responsible? Well, you know, there are several crew members who had accused the production of cutting corners in the interest of time and budget. Two people stepped forward with a lawsuit. Serge Svetnoy was the chief lighting technician. He filed one of the civil lawsuits. The other one was uh, Marnie Mitchell. She filed the other. You heard her voice perhaps on that chilling 911 call uh, that initially uh, when crew members reached out to the authorities in the immediate aftermath of that shooting. Now uh, Baldwin said uh, one of those two people, he declined to specify which one came up to him afterwards and said no responsibility that he bore no responsibility for what happened here he declined to say who made that comment but he said that it was unsettling that these lawsuits were being filed before hutchins husband had a chance to file his take a listen
9: those two people are lunging toward making sure their suits are filed before the husband files his suit they couldn't wait until Matthew, on behalf of his son, filed his suit first. So you first. expect Matthew to file a suit? Well, oh, how could it be otherwise? His wife, his wife was killed as a result of someone's, uh, I mean, I don't want to say negligence. It's not for me to use that word. That's a legal term. But, you know, something happened here that resulted in his wife's death. He's entitled to something as far as I'm concerned. I just found the filing of the two lawsuits civil lawsuits in advance of Matthew filing his lawsuit, I found that to be um, unsettling.
8: Now, Svet Noy's attorney actually spoke to CNN earlier this morning saying that his client was focused on bringing a, a awareness to the problem in the industry of films taking cost-cutting measures uh, at the expense of safety, safety protocols. Baldwin himself said he wasn't personally involved in the budget discussions. He said that his production responsibilities were strictly creative. He says, and I quote, there's only one question to be resolved, and that is where did the live round come from? And that, of course, is the focus of the investigation." that investigation is still ongoing. Zane?
1: Lucy Kapanoff in Denver for us. Thank you so much, Lucy. All right, some shocking new reporting on Facebook now. CNN finding that the social media company not only ran, but actually profited from ads comparing the U.S. coronavirus response to Nazi Germany. Take a look at some of these examples I'm about to show you here. So here is a sweater that reads, I'm originally from America, but I currently reside in 1941 Germany. And here's another with a picture of vaccine saying, slowly and quietly, but it's a holocaust. The social media giant also made money from ads that pushed political violence, like this one. CNN's Donny O'Sullivan joins us live now. So, Donnie, how on earth does Facebook excuse this?
10: Yeah, it's really pretty disgusting stuff, Zane. Um Don't... Look, oftentimes Facebook will like to frame their problems, issues on the platform in terms of free speech. They have billions of users, billions of posts every day. But this is very different. These are paid ads. These, this, these are ads that Facebook is promoting to their own users that Facebook is making money off of. Now, Facebook uh, took down and disabled those anti-vaccine ads, the ads comparing the vaccine to the Holocaust, uh, only after CNN brought it to their attention but that last ad you showed there, the one about make, uh, make hanging traders great again, uh, Facebook seemed to say that that wasn't against their rules. And that is actually still up on the platform. This, of course, uh, just months after January 6th insurrection, where we saw uh, gallows outside the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Frances Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, uh, was on with Anderson Cooper uh, last night here on CNN, and she was reacting to some of our reporting. Have a listen.
2: Facebook's business model is uh, conditioned on fixing problems after they find them. Facebook has known since 2018. Mark has publicly made comments on it. Mark Zuckerberg has made comments saying, engagement-based ranking, that means prioritizing content or ads based on their ability to provoke a reaction from you, which is usually the most extreme and polarizing content, is dangerous because people are drawn to engage with extreme content. But Mark said at the time, it's okay. AI will save us. The only problem is the AI misses lots and lots of problems. In the case of hate speech, only 3 to 5% of hate speech is caught.
10: And, you know, I think some folks will find it stunning, of course, that a company that makes billions of dollars in profits uh, can't, you know, police even the ads it's selling. Uh, until news organizations or researchers point out to the company that this stuff is on your platform. But of course, as as Haugen sort of alluded to there, that is by design. The reason why Facebook is so profitable is because it doesn't bother to have humans uh, review the paid ads before they run on the platform. It relies on computers, it relies on AI, and clearly that is not working. Zane?
1: Yeah, because I was going to ask, how did AI, I mean, if you look at some of the um, examples I was just reading before the introduction to you, you know, I'm originally from America, but I currently reside in 1941 Germany, really? And then um, saying slowly and quietly, but it's a Holocaust. That is so hateful and provocative. How did AI or their computer system not detect those ads?
10: It's not very good. Um, is the, I mean, you would think that, that a word like the Holocaust should set off some alarm bells, should uh, have a, then set off an alarm bell that a human will actually review this ad. Of course, once Facebook did have humans review it after CNN showed it to them, that is when they took it down. But clearly, this is a company that either has no interest or is not able uh, to get a handle on its own platform.
1: Daniela Sullivan, thank you so much for bringing the story to our attention, and I guess to Facebook's as well. All right, more First Moves after the break. Don't go away. <music> Welcome back to First Move, the demand for accessible and affordable homes on the rise around the world. And hoping to provide a quick solution, a company in Dubai is set to ship houses overseas. Eleni Jokos reports in today's Think Big. Think <music> Big.
11: Bedrooms, living area, and open kitchen.
12: We've got understairs storage cupboards.
11: It's a house like any other, or not quite.
12: So, where we are right now is at the beginning of the production line.
11: What makes it distinct is that it was constructed kilometres away in a house factory and was assembled on site in a matter of weeks. It's called modular housing.
12: Modular is really uh, taking elements of work from a construction site and then manufacturing them in a controlled environment offsite.
11: Link is a modular housing company established in Dubai in 2020.
12: The big idea behind Link is to provide a housing solution where there currently is one.
11: From infills to external layers, plastering, drilling. Here, building looks a bit different. It's like a production line.
12: When the work on that particular module is finished, everything gets indexed to the next workstation.
11: All in all, the idea is to save time.
12: The construction industry doesn't seem able to get levels of efficiency that it needs to make itself sustainable.
11: Depending on the project, Link estimates it could deliver houses up to 40% quicker than the traditional way. Once ready, the modular houses can be shipped and assembled anywhere in the world. And this could be part of a solution to a global problem. The United Nations estimates that 40% of the world's population will need access to adequate housing by 2030. Link is looking to get started on helping to supply this demand by shipping houses next year to the UK.
12: So we looked at the UK market, and the the UK market strives to deliver 300,000 homes a year. It currently delivers around about 150,000 homes a year. We believe that modular provides an answer to bridging the gap between what they want to do and what they need to do.
11: The company also hopes to deliver houses much closer than that in its home country. However, it is unlikely we'll see modular Burj Khalifas in the future.
12: Construction by nature has a lot of flair in its design. We are essentially manufacturing rectangular steel boxes that has a place and it can be integrated and it can be made to look fantastic, but it won't solve all problems.
11: So there's still room for growth, but with Lynx's first units shipping next year. If you're looking for a simple, quick design, a house from Dubai could be an option for your future home. Eleni Jarkar, CNN, Dubai.
1: And finally on First Move, a fashion magazine is banning fur from its international publications. Elle magazine says the move is about animal welfare and reflecting changing tastes. A number of fashion houses and retailers have ditched animal fur over the past few years as well. L executives say they hope their move fosters a more humane fashion industry. All right, that's it for the show. Uh, stay safe. Connect the World is up next. You're watching CNN.
0: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level.